Salmonella infections transmitted by food have doubled in the past two decades. What's causing this increase? What foods are to blame? And how can physicians identify and treat the condition? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu, a practicing general pediatrician and author. Our guest is Ian Williams, PhD, Chief of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Outbreak Net, a network of epidemiologists and other public health officials who investigate foodborne outbreaks and other enteric illnesses. Welcome, Dr. Williams. Thank you. Today we're discussing salmonella infections. Could you please talk a little bit about salmonella in general, as well as which strains might be most likely to cause foodborne illness? Yeah, thank you very much. And I want to make it clear that there's sort of two general types of salmonella infection. There's typhoidal salmonella and there's non-typhoidal salmonella. And at least in the United States, the majority of what we're seeing is non-typhoidal salmonella. And the way to keep this straight is the typhoidal salmonella is what we, when we think of typhoid Mary, the chronic carrier strain who goes on asymptomatically and infects lots and lots of people. That's rarely seen endemically in the United States. When we see it, it's almost always in a traveler who's returning from the developing world where we still see typhoidal salmonella. And the reason is typhoidal salmonella is mostly associated with bad sanitation and human-to-human transmission. So it's associated with fecal human waste for the most part. And due to increases in sanitation in the United States over the last 50 or 100 years, we see very, very little typhoidal salmonella. Among non-typhoidal salmonella, there are over 2,000 different serotypes that can cause illness. And one of the important points when we see non-typhoidal salmonella is to determine which serotype might be associated with illness because different serotypes have different characteristics and different host species which they're associated with. Now, focusing on the non-typhoidal salmonella, how common is it in the U.S. compared with worldwide? Every year in the United States, we see about 76 million Americans, or one in four Americans, gets a, gets a foodborne illness. And the bulk of these, um, about 80% of these, are likely associated with salmonella. It's the most common foodborne pathogen we typically see in the United States. Now, why might it be that these salmonella foodborne infections are increasing? I think it's two things are going on. One is they're being more increasingly recognized. By that, I mean that physicians are actually doing a much better job of when patients get identified with severe diarrhea or bloody diarrhea, um, they're actually being cultured and confirmed because laboratory testing is better and more reliable than, it, than it's ever been before. The other reason, I think, is actually a true increase in the number of cases due to the changes in our food supply globally. Historically, most of our food came from very close to where it was eaten from. It was raised locally in the farm around the corner within the state. Today, we're seeing foods coming from all over the world. The food can be in a foreign country 5,000 miles away and on your table three days later. Now, Salmonella St. Paul has been identified in an outbreak, the largest in the last decade. How common is this particular strain? This is actually a very, very rare strain in the United States. Overall, we saw about 400 people with Salmonella um, St. Paul in the United States last year. One of the things we do with Salmonella infections is we not only look at the serotype, we actually go further and do PFGE or pulse field gel electrophoresis, which is essentially the fingerprint of that bacterial isolate. In the Salmonella St. Paul outbreak, we've done that. 
we typically only see about 25 of the Salmonella St. Paul fingerprint every year in the United States. And as of today, we've seen more than a thousand of these in about a two-month period. So, so clearly an outbreak is going on. Now, with the foodborne salmonella, are there certain types of food that are more likely to transmit the illness? And why might these foods be more likely to do this? It's really a combination of two things. One, as I mentioned earlier, that salmonella has different host species and, and host ranges. We find certain types of salmonella in certain species. And some of it has to do with the origins of salmonella. Salmonella bacteria have been around for thousands and thousands of years and co-evolved with animal species. So certain types of salmonella we find commonly, say, in chicken or in eggs like Salmonella aniridis or Typhimerium. And it's just because it's a pathogen that's often found within that host species range. So oftentimes what we see is with a chicken product, oftentimes we'll see Salmonella aniridis or Salmonella Typhimerium in that product or, for example, among beef, we often see E. coli 0157H7 because that's a pathogen that you often find in, in bovine. Is there a reason why produce such as tomatoes, peppers, or cilantro might be more involved than other types of produce? I think for several reasons we notice it. Some of it has to do with how the products are grown and raised. As I mentioned earlier, there have been tremendous changes about how we grow and raise both lettuce and tomatoes and some of these other fresh produce products. They tend to be grown in large, large collectives, often going through a common processing point such as a packing house or plant or from a large common water supply. So if there's a problem in the path from farm to table, say at a processing facility, it doesn't affect just a small amount of produce or tomatoes or lettuce. It can impact thousands and thousands of pounds of material that might go all over the United States or around the world. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu. Our guest is Ian Williams, PhD. We're discussing salmonella infections. Once a physician sees a patient in their office, when might they suspect that there's a salmonella foodborne infection going on? I think the, the first clue is if the patient presents with severe diarrhea or bloody diarrhea. That, that's always sort of the tip-off, and we always encourage physicians to perform cultures of these to try to determine what the etiologic agent might be. And once they do identify, to please report these promptly to their state or local health department because, again, this is the process of us tying together potential outbreaks and identifying when we see a cluster of cases, two or more cases, we can launch an investigation to determine what they might have in common and if it might be a food vehicle. So once this has been diagnosed by culture, what would the next step be? Is it important to treat patients who test positive for salmonella? Treatment is very controversial. And, and uh, one thing to say, in most patients, salmonella tends to be a relatively mild infection. Death rates tend to be overall low. However, salmonella can be quite severe in the very young, in infants, and in the elderly, and in people who are immune compromised, where you can actually see more severe infections and, and even death. There is quite a bit of controversy of whether treating with antibiotics is appropriate or not and when it's appropriate, and it's really up to the individual clinician's judgment based on the status of the patient he's seeing in front of him whether to make that decision to treat or not. If the decision is made to treat, is it important to document a negative culture following the treatment? For certain groups of people, it really is. The group that's most especially important is a food handler, people who are preparing foods in home or in a restaurant. People can be asymptomatic and still spread salmonella and can be potentially infectious for a number of weeks after their apparent resolution. So we always recommend, especially for people who are commercial food handling, that they have a documented negative culture before they go back to work and prepare the food you might eat at your local restaurant. 
Now, as far as preventing further spread, you mentioned the food handlers. What about for public situations such as schools, daycares, workplaces, and hospitals? What precautions might there be? These are sort of general enteric precautions. It's, it's important to remember that this is a fecally orally spread pathogens for the most part, that they have to be consumed and ingested. The person has to ingest basically the feces of another if it's being spread from person to person. So in most settings, that's not likely to happen. However, we tend to be very cautious both in daycare settings where there may be more likely to be fecal contamination in the environment or again in a situation where we have a food handler who may not have good hand hygiene and have feces on their hand and then contaminate food that you might eat. So what are the best tips for a physician wanting to advise a patient to prevent the salmonella illness in the first place? I think it goes back to really thinking a lot about how you care for and prepare food. It's important to remember that salmonella actually grows when there is temperature abuse. If you don't handle your foods appropriately and there is a little bit of salmonella in it, if you leave it out at ambient temperatures, you can have rapid multiplication of the bacteria within the food. So a lot of it boils down to good food preparation, avoiding cross-contamination, simple things like making sure if you're cutting chicken on a cutting board that it's cleaned appropriately before you actually cut a fresh fruit or vegetable that's going to be eaten raw. It's also very important to point out that salmonella is actually very easily killed with appropriate cooking. So if things are taken to the appropriate temperature and there's a kill step, salmonella goes away. So it's important to avoid cross-contamination in the kitchen and to avoid temperature abuse of products that you prepare so you don't have an amplification. If there's a little bit in there, it doesn't become more. Does freezing have any effect on salmonella? It can have some effect, but it's no guarantee that salmonella won't be there when it's thawed out. Are there other strains of salmonella besides the St. Paul that are more of a concern that that patients would need to be worried about? In general, no. There are a large variety. There's over 2,000 different varieties of salmonella, different serotypes. They tend to have somewhat of a little variability in terms of their pathogenicity, but there are no ones that really stand out as being extra virulent. We had talked a little bit about food handlers transmitting salmonella. What about healthcare workers who happen to have the infection? And this is why it's important to follow good enteric precautions among healthcare workers. And hopefully that is happening out there. And this is appropriate hand washing and following all the good hand hygiene and practices you do in the healthcare setting. If you are following these, there is little worry that you're going to be spreading enteric pathogens. In an outbreak setting, particularly of the Salmonella St. Paul strain, tomatoes, peppers, as well as cilantro have been implicated as possibilities. As a public health measure, is it prudent to advise people not to eat any of these foods whatsoever? No, and and actually that's not what we're saying. I think it's tomatoes and peppers and other produce are, are part of a healthy diet. So we're encouraging people to know where their food is coming from, especially with the tomato warning currently, because um, we know that there are tomatoes that cannot be associated with this outbreak. And, And so we're really trying to encourage people to know a little bit about where their tomatoes come from. Some of the more recent data has suggested that possibly peppers or cilantro are indeed associated with this outbreak. We're still very much investigating these aspects. And currently, we've made recommendations regarding peppers, focusing mostly on immune compromised people who might be at higher risk until we can really better define where these peppers might have come from and and provide better advice for our consumers. 
Now, my understanding is that only 200 bacteria are needed to cause disease. Is it possible that people who ingest a small dose have such mild symptoms that they do not seek care? Yeah, very true. And we estimate for, for every clinical case that we see reported to CDC, there are as many as 30 or more cases that are out there. So there is a spectrum of disease. And oftentimes in outbreaks, we see the most vulnerable populations, the very old, the very young, the immune compromised, because they're the people who actually come seek care, or people with bloody diarrhea who are severely ill. Those are the ones we see. So we typically see just the tip of the iceberg. And what kind of public health impact is there knowing that there are patients who aren't being evaluated? It's very important for us to keep that in the back of our mind as we're investigating these outbreaks and looking to take action, especially if we suspect a food vehicle, because even though an outbreak may only report of having a thousand people, like in this outbreak, this likely means there's many thousands of other people out there who are getting ill who are not being reported into our system. So we really take this into consideration when really thinking about moving quickly to take action when appropriate. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Ian Williams. We've been discussing salmonella infections. I'm Dr. Jennifer Shu. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157, and thank you for listening.